Hi, I'm Jason. This is Filmography Club, and welcome to it. Today, we're continuing the Our Favorite Movie series, and it's a horror movie. We're talking about It Follows, the 2014 horror movie written and directed by David Robert Mitchell. And I'm excited about this episode because I got to talk to Alex Steed. Alex is the host of Nashville Demystified. That's a podcast about the more eccentric side of the city's history. He's also co-host of Why Are Dads? That's a podcast that looks at what movies have to say about fatherhood and our relationships with the dads in our lives. He's a writer and a former newspaper columnist, and his quote, real job is at Knack Factory. That's a video and content production company that he co-owns. If you've ever listened to his podcast, you know he's a bright, articulate guy, and I had a good time talking with him. So without further ado, I present to you my talk with Alex Steed about the 2014 horror movie written and directed by David Robert Mitchell, It Follows. And I'm joined by Alex Steed. Alex, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, of course. Of course. Thank you for showing up on late notice. Oh, anytime. I, uh, I'm often, especially in podcasting, running late. So I'm glad to <laughs> glad to fill in okay. where I can. <laughs> yeah, it's it's seat of my pants too sometimes. It's this good. week it's, was, was certainly that. Yeah. Maybe this is good for podcast karma, so I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So we're here today to talk about It Follows. We're doing, of course, our favorite movies. Uh, we're not doing the filmography. Well, what, what's the guy's name? The, the writer-director? I always flub it's this. David D- Robert David Robert Mitchell. Mitchell. Yeah. Who I mix up because of his aesthetic in like oeuvre generally with uh, David Gordon Green. You know, it's kind of, kind of a not similar by way of horror, but a, but a similar look and feel. And now David Gordon Green is obviously doing The Righteous Gemstones, but he's another favorite of mine. Well, this is another one of those movies where I had a guest bring up a potential movie that we could talk about that I had not seen. And this was, I remember, I, it's it's about a six-year-old movie, if I'm not mistaken. It was released in 2014. Yeah. yeah. And I believe it was streaming on Netflix for years. Mm. And uh, I had it in my queue to watch. And then <laughs> when I went to, to queue it up for this, it's like, okay, fi- finally, I can go ahead and watch that. It's not there. Yeah. But, uh, it, it's, if you guys are looking for it, it's on a uh, Prime video. It's on Amazon's streaming service to rent mm. right now. Usually, we don't talk about too many horror movies. Uh, so it was nice to, uh, to, to get into this one. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. I watched it for the first time yesterday. And I read up here and there, just a little last minute homework, I suppose. Sure. Thoroughly enjoyed it. I, I usually don't like horror movies, though, Alex. It's it's yeah. not typically my thing. Yeah, this is a. I guess this is what they call prestige horror. <laughs> it's like horror yeah. that um, if you have baggage around the genre, you don't have to feel bad about enjoying because it's doing it's doing other things as well. Uh, but I, you know, I I like I like horror quite a bit, and I don't necessarily. I think that this is a very smart movie and it, it accomplishes, I think, a lot of the things that it's going for and it's beautifully shot. But, um, you know, I, I have a I have a podcast now called called Why Are Dads? And we look at movies and kind of sort of look at the dad themes in them. And and that exists in a lot of horror. And we just covered Nightmare on Elm Street, which this movie just shares an incredible amount with. And so I just watched Nightmare on Elm Street, which is another favorite of mine about two weeks ago, um, have been thinking and talking about it since because of editing, uh, editing the podcast, which we released this week. And so it, this was, it was great to revisit. It follows, which I've seen maybe seven, seven or eight times since it came out. Oh, wow. Really enjoyed it. 
horror for me, it's one of those genres like comedies mm. that you really can't fake it. It's either funny <laughs> or scary, or it's yeah. just not. The audience will give you so much leeway. Mm -hmm. Eventually, they're going to realize whether you're you're a hack or not. And yeah. this movie was disturbing. And there's a lot of thematic stuff that I'd love to, to pick your brain on because you've seen this way more than I have, obviously. <laughs> and I've just looked around here and there and, and just seen a few different takes. And I'm not sure which one I agree with more, but obviously there's an overt sexual component to this. Mm. I'd like to hear your take on this too. Just put on sure. your wire dad's hat sure. and apply <laughs> that to this. Yeah, this is, I mean, this, so in, as far as I'm concerned, this movie has, has three sturdy, actually it has like four potentially readable overt themes and that you can read entirely through one of these four lenses. And I'll end on the where the dad's theme is. But I think the the first one is just sort of people living through post-recession economic anxiety, which is a really big piece because we spend a lot of time in, in um, the outskirts of the suburbs of Detroit. And we see, you know, the kind of the, the carcass of the city, for lack of a better word. And we see these kids living in sort of total anxiety as a result. Uh, the second one is the other one that gets thrown around a lot, which is sort of uh, sexual anxiety around uh, around STDs and around uh, just the baggage and responsibility that comes with being sexually active in the 21st century in particular. The third is a sexual assault theme. If you read this as, if you, if you read this as someone who is dealing with having been assaulted or raped and everything that they're going through after there's that theme in a really big way as well and then the fourth one which is the kind of the dad's theme and plays along with us just having looked at nightmare on elm street in the original nightmare on elm street freddy krueger is seen and presented as a child murderer but really there's sort of all of these suggestions that he's um not just a child murderer but a child molester and and that and he as a result, kind of is in the collective conscious as being a menace that reminds you that no matter how safe you think you are in the suburbs, there is something that can get you and can get your children. And this movie has very overt um, suburban anxiety feelings about what can get into the suburbs. No matter where you are, no matter how safe you think you are, there is something that's going to follow you to that place of uh, imaginary safety. As you were saying that, that very first opening shot came to mind, that big three <laughs> pan Warner with the young lady running out of the house and the lady mm. getting groceries out asking if she's okay right there in the suburbs and it's got this I, I can't quite put my finger on why it looks so creepy in those suburbs yeah. but but it just does yeah the suburbs I mean especially if the 20th the 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 you know the the second half of the 20th century feeling about what the suburbs could be and what they were supposed to be. I mean, it was really in a, in a lot of ways, there's a lot of, there's a lot of racial and racist undertones into what the suburbs are suburbs are supposed to be, which is to separate kind of a quote, um, you know, American upper middle-class American middle-class families, affluent families, which were at the time were predominantly white from the menace of the inner city in one way or another. And so it was supposed to be a tranquil place, supposed to be a place that you could feel safe. Uh, the people of a particular identity in the country could feel safe, feel good feel outside of harm's way and this movie does such a good job of showing that place that's supposed to make those feelings and there is not one time that you ever see the scenery here and feel okay <laughs> I, I suppose we should talk about what the, the concept of the movie is it's sort of a high concept horror movie mm. you want to go into that or, or shall i yeah so so um i mean basically this is a movie uh 
the 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 device of the movie is that you as a person uh, can get haunted and followed by this entity or demon. We don't really know what the thing is in it. The way that you get followed by it is you sort of contract it like a sexually transmitted disease. So if you have sex with someone who has this thing that's following them, it stops following them and it starts following you. If it kills you, it goes back to them. If it kills them, it goes sort of back. And so we're following a young woman who contracts this thing and then is going through along with a handful of her friends again in the sort of the outskirts of Detroit, trying to figure out how to get away from it. The guy that gives it to her immediately explains the rules of the movie universe and the curse, the sexually transmitted curse to her mm -hmm. and well, through her to us, the audience. So he explains it. It's not just that the thing is coming after you. It's constantly seeking you. It's always walking at a very slow but steady beeline to wherever you are. So you can get in a car and hell, you can get in a plane, I suppose, and fly to Hawaii and the thing will just get in the water. It's kind of implied and just walk the ocean. It'll it will find you eventually. You can't stay put. Yeah. And, and as a result, it's like it's anxiety. <laughs> You know, if you live with, yeah. I mean, I live with, I live with, um, you know, some, some manifestations of, of, uh, you know, manic disposition and anxiety, which in, you know, depending on what day you're living with is a blessing and a curse. I mean, this is the physical manifestation of living with anxiety. Yeah. The thing that's always making its way towards you. And if you don't take the proper steps, it will be on you. So the rules are explained to us and to her right there at the beginning. And as he puts it, the thing is slow. I think by that he means physically slow, mm. but it's smart and it will figure things out. It's got one purpose and it's constantly seeking that purpose out. Not a gory movie, by the way, uh, a horror movie that doesn't really revel in gore. The opening scene at the end of it, when we find the young lady's body on the beach that's about as bad as it gets. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. And and my as a as an appreciator of horror, my favorite movies are not gory movies. I mean, you know, Jaws is a classic. It's another one we've covered on Wire Dads. Um, and Nightmare on Elm Street's got some some gore for sure. But uh, the best, as far as I'm concerned, the best horror movie ever made, and probably the best independent movie ever made, is Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And there's no overt gore in that movie. It's just about menace. And I've talked to a lot of people in retrospect, I think I think a sign of something that's effective in that way is I've talked to a lot of people in retrospect who look back in that movie and believe there is gore in that movie. And there is no gore in that movie. There is suggestions of gore and people have filled in the blanks in their head. But this movie, you're right, doesn't even, it's not gory. I mean, it's like a, um, it's like a Vim Vendors movie, you know, it's like it like there it's all these beautiful, highly detailed, very interestingly lit shots that through the movement or through the lighting or through, you know, obviously there's a there's a very not obviously, but for people who know this movie, there's a very intense synth 80s soundtrack uh, through all of the various iterations of kind of like filmmaking technique. There is so much compounded anxiety and so much suggestion about the menace in it that it's that you don't need gore at all to underscore how terrifying this thing is. I started thinking back on Texas Chainsaw Massacre as you were talking about it. And yeah, you're right. I, I just in my mind, I always thought, yeah, that's that's a pretty gory movie. But no, actually, I can't think of <laughs> There's really in the remake, of course, it was just oh, a gore fest. Horrendous. 
Yeah, so I thoroughly enjoyed this thing. We had a, a cast who I'm not really familiar with much of anything that the, I didn't really recognize anyone from this cast, which, I, you know, I kind of like that in a yeah. horror movie, you know, in a way. Uh, I thought everybody did a great job in it. Uh, well, I did recognize the one kid who he plays the autistic kid on some show that's streaming on Netflix right now. He played uh, Paul. What's that guy's name? Uh, Paul yeah, Gilchrist, totally. I think. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's the one person I recognize from that. Yeah, I love uh, I love Paul. I love what you what you're saying there too. Is that I don't very similarly. I don't I didn't know who any of these people were when I first saw this movie. I I think um, I saw the lead actress in in the guest, but it wasn't sort of solidified in my memory yet about who she was. So it's a lot easier to relate to a cast if you don't recognize them from other things. That's a very handy thing. And that's that, that I imagine is a super hard balance to reach. If you're a filmmaker who's looking for capable actors yet are trying to keep things anonymous enough for people to project themselves onto the movie. But I really appreciated that. Can I, can I ask like what, as someone who does not like horror and I and, <laughs> totally understood <laughs> what, what stood out to you about this movie that made this uh, I'm not going to say like a, a palatable horror movie, but what, what made it stand out from, from what you think of when you think of horror? Well, this has the hallmarks of when an indie filmmaker gets a little bit of a budget, they have to stay <laughs> within those constraints. So they tend to go for a horror movie mm. and it's just easy to cheat with jump cuts you know, and, and, and stabs of music. And this movie didn't really do any of that. It was more about just let's sit with these characters. Here's the situation. Here's the rules that they're, they've got to abide by. And let's just see what happens. There wasn't a lot of the stuff that's uh, I normally associate with that. It's not it's not gore porn. A very simple premise. Everything's explained right at the beginning. Hell, you could watch the trailer and, and understand what this movie's about. Then we just kind of sit with these characters who all have little quirks. They don't just seem like vessels that the words in the script are being delivered through. They feel like real people. The uh, filmmaker really, he took some cues from the right people. And by the right people, I think I mean John Carpenter. Mm -hmm. Even the score kind of reminded me of the Halloween score. This was done by, uh, it's called Disasterpiece. It's yes. the name of the artist. Yeah, yeah, here's a link here. A guy named Richard Freeland, better known by his stage name is Disasterpiece. I, I found it kind of reminiscent of Halloween, but without absolutely knocking it off. And like the first Halloween movie, there were, I, think, I believe both of these movies were shot with uh, wide lenses. So we mm -hmm. get big, wide views of what's going on of this uh, suburban landscape that we're in. There's even homages, I would assume. Yeah. Like the scene with the two teenage girls smoking cigarettes, walking down the, the sidewalk, mm -hmm. and then the guy following at the very end. It, it felt very Halloween, very influenced by John Carpenter, but without knocking it off. I think you're totally right. And all, I mean, all of my favorite, you know, grabs from Halloween or, or just sort of standalone pieces of photography from Halloween or any of those shots where the girls are outside and you see, you know, you can either see Michael Myers poking his head out from you know from a from shrubbery or just kind of standing back there and that's a great point that you brought up that i didn't even notice is that the way that this is the way that this is shot as wide as it is i mean like i said i've seen this movie seven or eight times and i always catch something in the palette of that screen or in the canvas of that screen i should say that i didn't notice before because there's so 
even though the action is muted in so many of these scenes and there's not a lot of things happening, there's a lot to potentially notice. And so um, every time I rewatch it, I kind of rescan the screen to see if there's something I should have been been seeing the last time that I saw or maybe that I missed. And speaking to the, you know, this is extraordinarily well-timed because I just the other night watched um, Halloween 3, which is this one outlier in the series that that is not about Michael Myers. They tried to make it about the series about something else and they were going to anthologize the series that's neither here nor there but what's important to that is john carpenter did the theme to that movie as well and i love john carpenter overall i love john carpenter as a as a composer my favorite piece of john carpenter trivia is when he was doing his earliest compositions for movies like salt and precinct 13 and uh halloween and 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 a handful of others all of his music was synth saved on a computer but there was not there was not computer memory at the time so he had to save all of his themes on computer punch cards in order to uh, uh keep them in one place which is wild to think about that i'm sure the guy who scored this movie could have if he did not score pieces of it on his phone and <laughs> John Carpenter yeah. had to save stuff on literal cardboard cards <laughs> back in the 70s. <laughs> wow. Goodness. <laughs> uh, that's devotion. You know, if you can do that, you can do anything. <laughs> yeah, indeed. <laughs> Let's see here. So yeah, this uh, this movie is critically acclaimed. Did a great job at the uh, box office too. I mean, it had a, a budget of what, maybe two million? Yeah, yeah, two million. Mm. Pulled in twenty three point three. So overall, a success. I mean, and that's one of the the tempting things for young up and coming filmmakers who are doing indie movies. It's like, oh, we can do a we can do a horror movie. Those tend to be pretty low budget, and if this mm. one catches on the return on it's going to be outstanding, which this absolutely was. And if you're going to do that, I mean, I think that this movie is such a great lesson in this arena. Halloween's a great lesson in this arena. Um, Nightmare on Elm Street, like we were talking about, if you're going to make a, if you're a young person who's going to make a movie, you're going to make a horror and you have a low budget. Unfortunately, like the studio takeaway when these things started to take off was the horror um, was the was the nudity was the adult themes was the drug use like that to them they thought is what people were were coming in for and that's absolutely true like if you're a studio you're trying to make money you only want to throw like a little bit of money behind it you want to get in front of people with the promise of the franchise and give them horror there are a handful of things you can put in a movie uh not spend a lot of money and make a shitload of money and that and a lot of studios did exactly that throughout the 80s which is why people have a bad taste in their mouths around around slashers which you know i think that this is a cousin of slasher movies but this reminds that if you're going to make a horror movie, what you should do is use the horror as an excuse for character development, right? Like the horror shouldn't be the primary focus of your movie. Jurassic Park has dinosaurs in it for 13 minutes of a two and a half hour movie. Ultimately, these Jaws, the shark is in one quarter of the movie of Jaws. You should always Alien. be using... Alien, absolutely. You should always be using the specter of the monster to see how people interact with each other in those situations because that's what you're going to relate with if you're a viewer. You're not going to relate with, oh, oh no, demons. Oh, no, a shark attack. Like, those aren't things that re- that relate. What relates is how you deal in anxious, intense, and terrifying moments. Every zombie movie ever, for example. <laughs> yes. you know, the villains are always us. Yes, right? absolutely. Absolutely. And this, yeah. this movie, in a big way, like Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, in, in our conversation about Nightmare on Elm Street, we arrived to, you know, Freddy Krueger 
is a villain in the movie, but Freddy Krueger is ultimately born of a bad things that parents did before we even get to know them, get to know the movie. And you know, this movie similarly, it's kind of, this is another sins of our parents movie in a lot of ways, because any parent you have in this movie is totally absent or, you know, because of just the realities of working these days, maybe has two or three jobs and they're kind of out of the picture. Uh, the best they could do in their minds was keep their kids safe by bringing them to the suburbs, but then they're absolutely absent. So again, the, you know, the, the villain in this movie is of course this thing that these kids are trying to get away from, but the, you know, allegorical villain in the movie is still like almost other every other horror movie is uh is human created and you also uh, the villain like you said it is the creature the the it whatever it is but it's also kind of us you're sort of being betrayed by a person who's you just shared a very intimate moment with somebody mm -hmm. you're opening yourself up to somebody and it's a betrayal it's yes hey here's what i did here's what i did to you here's what you need to know good luck and don't die because then it'll just start coming back up the line Right. So Absolutely. I'll be next. And yeah. so you have an obligation to kind of pass it off. Or do the quote unquote noble. Well, there is no noble thing because if you just <laughs> offer yourself up, even if you're totally selfless and you offer yourself up, now the person that gave it to you is going to get killed <laughs> and it's going to start going back up the chain. Totally. And it's kind of like, I mean, that's ultimately, and I, I don't know that this is anything that the movie was trying to consciously touch on, but that's, it's kind of how the, I mean, the cycle of violence works, period, right? Is that it's like, you know, a hundred or 200 or 2000 years ago, however long ago, someone did a bad thing and that was the original bad thing and someone retaliated and then people could remember the sources of the violence. And then eventually it's just violence because violence perpetuates itself. And there are people who, in order to get away from it, you need to, you're essentially stuck in that cycle. And the, you know, that, that reminds me, that reminds me of this in a big way because of exactly how you just described it. Like there is no, sometimes within this context, there's no noble way out of this intimidating or threatening situation. If you get out of its way, someone else is going to get hurt. If you do something about it, someone's going to get hurt. And you know, for a lot of people, that's how they live their lives. They're stuck in some system that is entirely outside of their control. They're damned if they do, and they're damned if they don't. And that's where, that's where I think the commentary on, on suburbia and in sort of post-aughts recession, post-housing Christ collapse. That's where a lot of people were. And that's why I think that that theme works here is that there was like, uh, uh, people were just stuck in a system they had no control over. They did the thing that they thought they were supposed to do. They're supposed to buy a house. They're supposed to invest in it or whatever. And then they find themselves completely destitute. And we see a lot of that imagery reminding of that in this movie, when the kids at the end, I call them kids. I don't know. I think they're in community college. So they're supposed to be like 18 or 19 when they're on their way kind of into the city, we see in Detroit, which got hit the hardest by the housing crisis, kind of, you know, empty house after empty house after empty house, all these houses right. that eventually would be sold for a dollar just so that people would inhabit them. Yeah. 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 Heady themes in such a, uh, <laughs> like a small budget <laughs> horror movie. Totally. And like you, you said about the cycle of violence, it's not necessarily just a cycle of overt violence. There's also that cycle of uh, like sexual abuse. People mm -hmm. who tend to be abusers where they were themselves 
abused also. There could be some allegory there too. Um, yeah. I'm looking at- Totally. That's a great point. Yeah. I'm looking at a list of in- possible interpretations that people have come up with this movie. It is stuff that we've already hit on. HIV, AIDS, sexually mm-hmm. transmitted infections, um, the social perceptions of those things, the sexual revolution, primal anxieties about intimacy. But the filmmaker himself, Mitchell, uh, I'm going to read a quote from him. I'm not personally that interested in where it comes from. To me, it's dream logic in the sense that they're in a nightmare. And when you're in a nightmare, there's no solving the nightmare, even if you try to Mm. solve it. And he says that while our main character, Jay, opens herself up to danger through sex, sex is one of the ways that she can free herself from that danger. We're all here for a limited amount of time and we can't escape our mortality. But love and sex are two ways that we can, at least temporarily, push death away. Yeah. So there's there's that reading. Yeah, Yeah, I I really... I, I like what you said because I've read I've read endless essays about this movie and and I know I read one that was really incredible about a woman who watched this movie a couple of times and she saw it with her her boyfriend and she was like, well, I believe Jay was raped um, because when when this thing is initially passed on and and this is left I believe relatively ambiguous in the movie where it's passed on by a by a man she's dating she says. It's passed on through sex, obviously. It's confusing about when the actual sex happens because at some point he chloroforms her and she she passes out, although we've seen them being intimate right beforehand. And so it's confusing as to when the actual sex takes place. And she later says, um, when she's being questioned by the police, she asks if it was consensual and she says that it was consensual. But if you know literally anyone who's dealt with, with sexual violence and has been dealt with in a police situation, often people feel pressure that they have to say that it was consensual. And so there's a lot of ambiguity around what the reality of that sexual relationship is. And, you know, regardless of the reasons this person had to get rid of it or else he's going to die or whatever, that speaks to what I think you very eloquently stated earlier on about how the sexual violence itself is usually part of a passed down cycle. It's usually part or it's often part of someone transgressing a boundary because a boundary was transgressed upon them and they need to feel the to, to get the power. Uh, they need to reclaim power in the way that it was illustrated to them that you could take it from people people. And so so anyway, this goes back to this essay that a woman a woman had uh, written about watching this movie with her boyfriend and her boyfriend was basically like, "Oh, you're crazy to to read that as a rape scene." And she was like, "Oh, I can't trust this person. Like this person w- doesn't believe my interpretation of seeing what in my experience very much looks like sexual assault. And I'm, you know, I'm really glad for her that she had the realization if that's what she, if that's where she landed. And I think that that's the power of, of movies that say that they're horror because they are horror, but if they're effective, they, they usually end up accidentally revealing a lot of things about the place that we live and the people we live with. That's well put, I believe. Can I ask you how you felt about, I mean, I, I personally believe that what stood out to me about this movie originally was so many things, but one of the things that was just burned into my mind are a number of these shots. Like this movie is gorgeously shot and shot with incredible detail. Do you remember anything that stands out to you about just like how it was shot and and what was presented? That first shot, the big 360 pan with the the girl running around in the suburbs Mm. in the negligee and the high heels, which that's a whole (laughs) conversation. Like who knows what went went on in that house? Yeah. yeah, It it caught my attention immediately. And like we mentioned earlier, the big, the, the wide lens, uh, lent mm-hmm. itself to those big slow pans, like when Jay is in class 
just kind of scanning out the windows and she just passes right by and there, there's so much for us to look for as an audience member we're involved because these shots are so wide and we're looking for something in there and sure right. enough there's the old lady walking towards her across that field and then when the, they're on the beach mm-hmm. and the creature takes the form of their friend Yara and yes. she's behind coming towards her but why would you sit with your back Sit with your back to the ocean. It's not coming from the ocean. <laughs> totally. Yeah. But it made for, it, it looked great though. And it gives us something to look for. So yeah, it was, and then of course the obvious, uh, it's homage, right? It's homage. I, no, it's, it's, it's either it's one really. I've heard it, I've heard it both, it? but, but I, say, okay. I say homage, but yeah, homage too is works. Okay. Well, there's the obvious uh, influence from John Carpenter, especially that scene with the two teen girls walking down the suburban neighborhood sidewalk. Mm. That's just straight out of Halloween. That's Jamie Lee Curtis and... Um, was that PJ Souls that PJ, she was yeah. with? Yes, it was. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love yeah. a couple of things about this movie that I saw this time around that I don't think I noticed. I mean, I, I know generally that I love how this movie looks and feels, but I think this time around, knowing that I have all the, you know, I have all the thematic content packed away, I started looking for other stuff. And I love movies that are that are creatively and interestingly lit. And one of the things I noticed about this is unless the scene was outside in broad daylight, no room was fully lit everything was lit by a lamp or a light leak and that was kind of incredible to watch happen because usually the way we'll see as a result of that if there's finite light in a room and especially if there's like lateral light meaning it's not coming from above it's coming from the side all that we can fit into the scene that is clear is our protagonist or whoever we're supposed to be focusing on it makes for an even more anxious viewing because you know that you're supposed to be looking out for something but you can't see it because it's fully lit however it's shot so well and probably on such incredible gear even you can get great gear for for just two million dollars uh <laughs> you everything just is still clear but you can in old 80s horror movies which this touches on a lot in late 70s horror movies because of just the realities of the gear when stuff is poorly lit you can't see anything in the background and it kind of loses it loses tension it just becomes confusing and in this i appreciate how some things are lit more than others but you can still see everything that's going on in the scene and in the opening or one of the one of the opening scenes after after we we see this girl this unnamed girl kind of run away from this thing we see jay in the pool and she looks down at her arm and there's a little ant on her arm and she watches it she should trace it like one of the little 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 ants that's like running down her arm and i don't know how intentional as i imagine with how great this filmmaker is uh it was pretty intentional but you know that's jay right like we see this little ant on this mass expanse surrounded by water um just like running to nowhere in particular and like that's a setup for like what we see she's about to go through and i like that a lot too definitely didn't notice it the first seven times i watched it so maybe i'm forcing it into reality (laughs) that was definitely included for some reason though so (laughs) yeah i think i think you you may be onto something there i hope so (laughs) yeah that's a good reading i don't know why they kept while that happened i remember thinking that was weird what's what's that about the other thing i love about this movie and i I thought it was like cute and interesting when I first saw it, but I especially love it now is Yara. The character Yara is constantly engaged in an e-reader that might also be a phone because we're not entirely sure where she's reading um, uh, Dostoevsky's The Idiot. 
And she, it's called popularly called when referring to this movie as the, as the clamshell. And it looks like a little right. shell that she's reading. It's, it's an entirely an invented piece of technology for this movie. And it's such an interesting way to handle the technology dilemma that most modern horror movies have to go through. The technology dilemma being the pre-cell phone technology dilemma in a horror movie was I have glasses, I broke my glasses, or I have shoes, I broke my shoes. In or a the modern, car won't turn over, the engine won't start. Or, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. The modern the modern horror equivalent is in theory, in almost any situation, your phone should be able to get you out of it. And so you have to break the phone or displace the phone. In the new Halloween movie, like the character's phone is thrown into a bowl of, of tapioca, which is really funny. Uh, but there are different reasons why you're separated from the technology that can possibly save you. And in this movie, it erases your expectation of that technology because this movie we're not quite sure when this movie happens and and it looks kind of like it's in 99% our reality but based on this weird piece of tech that she has where she's constantly reading a book maybe we're led to believe that technology has evolved just differently in their universe and they don't constantly have a phone where they can call somebody else this movie does a really good job of of, of basically saying like don't expect your tech to save them also it's sort of established that these are some weird kids that we're hanging out with too. Uh, yes. I mean, like you said, <laughs> this is a teenage girl sitting around reading Dostoevsky while watching old black and white, like what? No, these kids don't know. No, right. this is not something that would happen in modern America right now. And that we talk a lot about that in, in Wire Dads. In particular, we talked a lot about it with Nightmare on Elm Street, but the same thing happens in Dirty Dancing, where there are two eras being portrayed in the movies. And so the way it's manifested in Dirty Dancing, of course, is Dirty Dancing takes place in 1963. Yet the last scene fully acknowledges in the text of the movie that the music is from the future is is a modern take you know we've been hearing 60s bands the whole time and then now we're encountering uh, a 1987 you know single <laughs> and and that's actually handled in the movie in a really interesting way i didn't remember from being a kid and the same thing happens in nightmare on elm street where it's 1984 but the kids in Nightmare on Elm Street are the kids from Wes Craven's childhood. There's a kid who's a greaser. I mean, you weren't seeing greasers in the in the 80s. Yeah. Um, a Johnny Depp has a, has like a candy apple convertible from the 60s. Their names are all kind of like 60s names. And they inhabit, Nightmare on Elm Street does a lot of amazing things by way of time and querying your sense of when and where you are as a result. And that's one of the big things that it does. And this movie has so many nods to those classic sort of 70s and 80s horror movies. I think that is a big nod where it's you're not sure when or where you are. You're not sure what kind, as you said, you're not sure what kind of kids these are. You can relate to them, but you don't really know them very. You you know them as they're presented, but you're not like, oh, that's m like my friend from school. Like they're very unique. They're not normal kids. No. <laughs> Most kids don't <laughs> sit around doing that stuff. But I think that could also just go a long way to sort of subconsciously prime the viewer's brain into thinking like, well, well these kids aren't tied to their phones. They're just yes. not that kind of, these aren't those kind of kids yeah, without absolutely. actually overtly coming out and saying that. But yeah, no. I never thought about the technology problem, or at least I've never heard it named as such. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I makes a lot of sense, especially in, in horror movies. Oh God. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a, uh... 
it's a it's a hard one to do unless the tech is tied into creating the horror like there's a there's a great movie called your next uh which is a horror movie um i've seen that one yeah yeah in 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 phones are used to set up deceit and stuff and i think that that's a really helpful way to deal with the technology if you again it's like the horror like don't make uh, uh, if you're going to use the horror to create a series of circumstances in which you explore the humanity of the people, you can do that with the tech as well. Um, it doesn't have to be a hurdle. Like any great horror, this is a specific movie. It's tightly made. It has conceits that help drive it and create sort of the plot line and, and create the character exploration. But it also... It also creates, without creating any confusion, a blank enough canvas for you, the viewer, to find in it your own anxiety and relate to it in that way. And all great movies do that in one way or another. And I'm, I'm grateful for this movie for doing exactly that. Alex, I want to thank you for being on the show. I've been looking forward to this one for a while. I've been looking forward to doing a doing a podcast with you. Oh, it's it's super fun. I'm I'm I love that you're doing the show. It's such a cool way to uh to do the dip, the big dive into into this world. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, and uh, maybe we'll get you on again sometime. I look forward to it. Cool. Um, real quickly, uh, got anything you need to plug? Oh, sure. Yeah. So if anyone wants to listen to me talk more for some reason, I have a podcast called Nashville Demystified, which is on the We Own This Town network, right, with yours. We basically tell rare and unknown stories about the city or long forgotten stories about the city and occasionally just talk to people we enjoy talking to. And the other one is a podcast called Why Your Dads, which is co-hosted with my friend Sarah Marshall, who's the host of a podcast called You're Wrong About. And very similar to what we did just now, we talk about movies that we specifically look at them through the lens of trying to understand one's relationship with their father, uh, which talking about dads and relationships with dads, depending on how you grew up, can be hard. And so we figured we would use things that people relate to to create the language for that. And it's been very, I've been grateful that it's been received as well as it has been, particularly by people who have difficult relationships with their dads. But it's for people who have all sorts of relationships with their dads, good, positive, existent, non-existent, and otherwise. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time, man. Awesome. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. Thanks, man. See ya. Yeah, that was fun. I've been looking forward to having Alex on for a while, and I'm glad we took the time. We'll have to do it again. So that's it for the episode. If you liked what you heard, please consider giving us a review, maybe a rating too while you're at it on whatever platform you're using to listen to us. We'd really appreciate it. I'd like to thank Will Fox, Ross Warner, and Michael Eads. Of course, I'd like to thank my guest, Alex Steed, as well. Filmography Club is produced right here in beautiful Nashville, Tennessee, by the always hardworking folks that we own this town. I'm Jason Cavanis. This is Filmography Club. Thank you for listening. 